Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. During our last two episodes, Sherry Crawford and I discussed Gerda Lerner's The Creation of Patriarchy, and we talked about structural patriarchy in the ancient world, including in the Bible. Just a couple of days after we recorded those episodes, some dear friends of mine and my husband had their first baby, a little boy. They're Jewish, and we were invited to the bris. I could not believe the timing. The very week I had talked about circumcision on the podcast, what we had called the penis covenant, I was going to witness a bris, which is a ritual circumcision, and in Hebrew means covenant. And I saw our friends there with their new baby and their family and their rabbi, and my heart was so full, I was immediately emotional. But because we had just read Gerda Lerner's book, and Gerda Lerner, by the way, was also Jewish, and I think actually part of her project was confronting the male supremacy in her own religious tradition, um, because uh, we had just recorded that episode, I had all of those parts of the Bible that excluded women fresh in my mind. And so parts of the bris were really hard for me, and I felt the way I often feel in my own religious heritage just completely left out. I just felt marginal in a spectator role as a woman, while God does the important stuff with his favorite children, the boys. But it was also so beautiful. When the rabbi wrapped our friends up with their baby in a talit or a prayer shawl, I felt like my heart was going to explode. The love of that mother and father for each other and for their baby and the connection with their ancestors and their faith tradition and that language and the community that they had so generously expanded to make me a part of welcoming that baby into the world was so, so beautiful. And yet it was still hard for me. And I share this because this experience of having those two experiences right next to each other, recording that episode on the creation of patriarchy, and then participating in that beautiful religious ceremony, just kind of showed me how complicated all of this is. There's joy tangled up with pain. There's beauty tangled up with hurt. And as I try to untangle those elements of history and religion and human psychology, I want to be able to confront difficult and problematic aspects of culture in order to improve life for everyone. But as I identify those problems, I don't want to lose my bearings. I don't want to become a cynic whose vision is filtered through dark, pessimistic, ill-tempered lenses. And above all, I never, ever want to hurt anyone. I want to keep seeing the beauty and to keep believing the best in people. So I guess I wanted to start with that today because I want to make kind of a declaration of the ethos of this whole project. I want to be honest and critical about systems, but I want to be careful and tender with human beings. And that's specifically the needle that we will try to thread today, again, as we talk about complexity in religious belief Um, on this next step of our historical timeline. So we just left off with the Hebrews and the Greeks in the creation of patriarchy. And when we pick up the next episode, we're going to begin with the creation of feminist consciousness, 
which starts with a little bit about the early church fathers and then goes on to women's writings in the Middle Ages. So there's a historical gap. And on this bonus episode, my reading partner and I are going to fill in that gap with a few important aspects of early Christianity, focusing especially on the Virgin Mary. This is another topic that is precious to many people, including us, and we will try to be both honest and gentle in our analysis. We've gleaned this information, by the way, from a few different books rather than just one essential text, and so all our sources are published in the show notes on our website, breakingdownpatriarchy.com. So with that long introduction, let's get started. And first, I'd like to introduce my reading partner for today, Sophie Olivest. Hi, Sophie. Hi, thanks for having me. So for today's episode, we're going to talk briefly about four concepts. First, we'll talk about Christian views on women as presented in the New Testament of the Bible. Second, we'll talk about the early Christian church and the Virgin Mary. Third, we'll talk about convents and the lives of nuns. And fourth, we'll talk about the Protestant Reformation and its impact on women. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Okay, so the first concept is the figure of Jesus Christ in the Christian Gospels. One book I read on this topic is Christ's Emancipation of Women in the New Testament by Lynn Wilson. The thesis of her book is that Jesus's behaviors and message are very pro-woman and even liberating, especially in the context of gender depression in which they lived. She points out that Jesus is a revolutionary figure, like in John chapter 4, verse 7, and John 5, 30, he initiates conversations with women, which was strongly discouraged at the time. In Luke 10, he He includes them publicly as his students and disciples. In the book of Mark, he allows a menstruating woman to touch him, which was completely inappropriate and a violation of the social norms and actually quite scandalous at the time. Um, In Matthew 28, he appears first to women after his resurrection, or rather to a woman, to Mary Magdalene, um, thus entrusting her with the role of a witness. And actually, a Catholic friend pointed out to me once, if you define the Christian church as the people who are witnesses of Christ's divinity, then for those hours after Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Jesus and before she told the disciples, then Mary Magdalene was the entirety of the Christian church. She was the only one who knew. Um, And of course, another aspect of the Christian gospels that elevated women was the fact that a human woman, Mary, was entrusted with being the mother of the Son of God. Yeah, and Jesus never tells women to get back home into their proper place. And all of his teachings are for everyone. Everyone is supposed to be as wise as serpents, the women too, and as gentle as doves, the men too. He doesn't say that men should be strong and women humble. He says that all human beings should be both strong and humble. He doesn't make gender distinctions. Exactly, exactly. So I really loved um, Lynn Wilson's book and really highly recommend it, especially for any listeners who are believing Christians. I found it um, really insightful and um, she does a great job giving context to of, of reading those familiar passages, but in the context of history and what was going on at the time. But then in the New Testament, of course, after the Gospels, then you have Paul. So he is definitely a shift in attitude. He's definitely grounded in sexist tradition. He never actually met Jesus and only converted after Jesus had died. So he never observed how Jesus behaved with women. I don't know if that would have helped anyway, but um, he definitely had a different attitude toward women than Jesus did. But in any case, here are some thoughts from Paul about women. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 6 in the New Inspired Version of the Bible. 
It says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. So obviously this is um, talking about women having their hair covered, that, that that modesty and not covering her hair is important. But for me, the, the most important part of that is saying that the head of the woman is man. Sophie, will you read the next scripture? Yep. Um, this is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Would you mind reading the next one? Mm -hmm. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, one last quote from Paul, and this is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love, and holiness with propriety. So from all of these passages of scripture, we can see that Paul's views on women are firmly rooted in the biblical story of Eve, which we talked about on our last episode. And he emphasizes the version of Genesis wherein Eve was formed second after Adam, which he says gives her lower status. Paul emphasizes her sin and bringing Adam into sin. And he says her only redemption is by bearing children. And he assigns all of Eve's guilt to women in general. And due to that guilt, he makes rules about what women can and can't do. They have to cover their heads in shame. Wives have to submit to their husbands. In general, women have to submit to men and never have authority over men, not because they should be equal, but because men actually should, in fact, have authority over women. Um, women can't speak in church they should always be quiet and always be in full submission. All of these opinions and interpretations, in my view, are a huge departure from the teachings of Jesus Christ. And yet they got compiled in the same book of scripture with the gospels. And so millions upon millions of people have regarded Paul's words as also the word of God. And they think of these passages also as God's law and God's will. Okay, so that's all I have for the... Um, the New Testament passages. And so now we'll go on to talk about the early Christian church and the Virgin Mary. I started by looking on the website Encyclopedia Britannica. And the first thing that I found interesting was this sentence. Because of the influence of Plato and Aristotle on those who developed it, Roman Catholic doctrine must be studied philosophically even to understand its theological vocabulary. It's good to keep in mind that early Christianity was heavily influenced by the ancient Greeks. That's really important when we think about how people viewed women. 
Yeah, there were lots of influences on Christianity, and they were all extremely androcentric, andro meaning man, of course, androcentric patriarchal structures. So. Yeah, that makes sense, but then is also still quite surprising. <laughs> yeah, that's how I, yeah, that's how I felt. Okay, so back to church history. Um, a basic timeline goes something like this. According to Catholic tradition, uh, the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ, and it's a continuation of the early Christian community established by the disciples of Jesus. Catholics believe that St. Peter was Rome's first bishop. St. Peter was the one who was appointed to be the head of the church by Jesus Christ himself, and is always depicted in art holding keys because he received the keys to the kingdom of heaven from Jesus. After Jesus' death, he ministered in Rome in the first century AD, and so that became the headquarters of the church. And then St. Peter consecrated Linus as the next bishop or pope, and that started the unbroken line all the way to the current pope, Pope Francis. By the end of the second century, bishops began congregating in regional synods, which means a church council, to resolve questions about doctrine and policy. Jesus' apostles gained converts in Jewish communities around the Mediterranean Sea, and over 40 Christian communities had been established by 100. The new religion was most successful in urban areas, spreading first among slaves and people of low social standing, and then among aristocratic women. Christians were badly persecuted for a while. Estimates of the number of Christians who were executed ranges from a few hundred to 50,000. But then Constantine became emperor of the Western Roman Empire in 312, and he attributed his victory to the Christian god. So he issued the Edict of Milan in 313, which legalized Christianity. He held the Council of Nicaea in 325, when a group of church leaders, of course all of the men, met together and decided on official church doctrine. And in three Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. Catholics make a distinction between worship and veneration. They say that they don't worship Mary, but they venerate her. The word venerate comes from Latin and means adore or revere. So they respect her and try and be like her, but they don't worship her. Catholics claim that the roots of the veneration of Mary are found in the Bible. For example, she was, of course, made the mother of God through a miracle. One quote that I found in my research says, The Virgin Mary began to cooperate in the plan of salvation from the moment she gave her consent to the incarnation of the Son of God. And then Mary was there all the way through the end of Jesus' life and played an important role according to Catholics. Particularly significant is Mary's presence at the cross when she received from her dying son the charge to be mother to the beloved disciple. Catholics interpret that through that disciple, Christ is giving care of Mary to all Christians. Mary had been venerated since very early. The first image of Mary is a painting of her in the Roman catacombs in the 2nd or 3rd century. It's quite realistic, um, the painting is, and different from the Mary art we'll be discussing later, though it's kind of hard to make out. Jesus is holding on to Mary as she nurses him, unsurprisingly embodying the mother figure. It's a very natural painting with human features and a tender feeling. And the oldest Marian prayer refers to her as Theotokos, which some interpret as the mother of God, but I've also seen a God-bearer. And I find that distinction interesting, the use of the word mother. I can't tell if the phrase mother of God or God-bearer gives her more power or what that says about her identity. Both phrases make her identity completely dependent on her relationship to Jesus. But to me, mother implies a softness and God-bearer implies kind of implies strength. But anyway, it was finally declared a dogma in the church that Mary was the mother of God at the Council of Ephesus in 431. This is interesting to me because she had been prayed to and painted for hundreds of years, but the first churches dedicated to Mary only start to appear after that event. 
Oh, that's, yeah, that is really interesting that like you just described that these practices had been present among the people for a while and then they were just formally like dogmatized, made part of the official Catholic doctrine at at those councils. And then you start to see things appearing, you know, with churches being dedicated to Mary after that, but that people were doing it already. They were already praying to her and they already had these beliefs in her as the mother of God. One thing I was thinking about also is from some books I read was that as the Catholic Catholic Church emphasized Mary's role, she literally became known as the new Eve. So Mary offered an alternative role model for women rather than Eve, and she offered potential redemption for females as a whole. As second century cleric Irenaeus comments, quote, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the Virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith, end quote. And then St. Jerome echoes an even more concise slogan, quote, death through Eve, life through Mary, end quote. So they saw Eve's negative acts as being canceled out by Mary's positive ones. Yes, it's fascinating. And this theme is developed in the visual arts as well. One prime example of this is Bertold Fortmeyer's 1489 work, The Tree of Life and Death Flanked by Eve and Mary Ecclesia. In this vividly colorful, highly symbolic work, Fortmeyer places the iconic tree in the exact center and invites the viewer to toggle between the highly symmetrical left and right sides. On the right is a nude Eve flanked by skeletal figures and frozen in the act of accepting a forbidden fruit from the serpent with one hand seemingly offering another wicked fruit to an unfortunate supplicant. On the left side, in a pose which perfectly mirrors that of Eve, is the chastely clad, halo-bearing figure of Mary, who is surrounded by a crucifix and an angel instead of skulls, and offers to her companions a sacramental wafer rather than the fruit of destruction. Mary's goodness is presented as the precise antidote to the evil of Eve, counteracting its effects and providing a fresh start and a worthy example for women. And this had a real effect on women's lives. It really helped women to have a divine mother to look up to. In Neri Rubin's book, Mother of God, she quotes a young mother named Aud Fare from the 12th century who wrote that when she was, quote, troubled by doubts about the Eucharist, her body, and life in general, she was comforted and strengthened by reflection on Mary, end quote. And even men liked having a heavenly mother figure to ask for help. Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived in France in the 1100s, said this, In dangers, in doubts, in difficulties, think of Mary, call upon Mary. Let not her name depart from your lips, never suffer it to leave your heart. While invoking her, you shall never lose heart. So long as she is in your mind, you are safe from deception. While she holds your hands, you cannot fall. Under her protection, you have nothing to fear. If she walks before you, you shall not grow weary. If she shows you favor, you shall reach the goal. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And even beyond balancing out Eve, in art, we start to see lots and lots of different types of Mary art. I'm going to talk about three major genres that present Mary in a role of importance. First is probably the most familiar, Mary in the role of the mother of God. As I mentioned earlier, there are really old paintings that depict Mary and Jesus in very human moments that any mother or child could relate to. But most of the time she's portrayed in kind of a less personal way and more in the way you might typically think of, dressed in blue with her head bowed, just holding the baby Jesus in her arms. It's quite rare for Christian artwork to have women as the most prominent figure in the painting, but in this type of work, Mary is always the biggest figure. 
In fact, in some paintings, Mary is equal in size and stature to Joseph and sometimes leads the Christ child by the hand with Joseph following behind. Even in the paintings where it's just Mary and Jesus, as an adult, she clearly still holds the most power. It's continuing a tradition of ancient goddess worship. This way of depicting Mary looks quite similar to sculptures of Isis and Horus in ancient Egypt. The second genre is known as the Maria Regina, which in Latin means Mary the Queen. Regina means queen, and in English, we have the word regal. In lots of paintings and mosaics, Mary is shown reigning as the queen of heaven, with priests, saints, wise men, and in some paintings, even the Pope worshipping at her feet. One of those paintings was done by Diego Velasquez in 1644. The scene is of Mary being crowned by both the Father and Jesus the Son, each holding a side of the crown above her head. The three figures form a triangle, but Mary is still the center of the piece. Her blue robes contrast the deep reds worn by the men above her, and she rests her hand over her heart as she looks down. Two Italian artists in the years 1340 and then in 1504 both painted this scene with very similar structures, um, but different from the Velasquez painting. Mary and Jesus sit at the top of these paintings, Jesus being taller as Mary bows her head at him. Several angels and other figures are below and at the side, praising Jesus and Mary. Her hands are crossed over her chest or held in a prayer-like motion that indicates reverence, gratitude, and humility. Mary looks meek compared to Jesus, and one of the only things that even lets you know that she's important is the crown above her. This is different from Velasquez's painting, where Mary is the biggest figure in the picture, the clear focal point. Her head is bowed down instead of at the men or man crowning her. Her posture is regal, her shoulders back, and her hand laying over her own heart, almost pointing to herself. This painting would make just as much sense if there were no men in the painting. But it's important to keep in mind that even though this art depicts Mary being crowned the queen of heaven, she is often depicted lowering her head or kneeling at her son's feet to receive the crown from him. The implication of which is that the crown is both his to give and his to take away. In the Velasquez painting, the entire Holy Trinity still presides over the woman, the imposing bearded figures of God the Father and Jesus Christ bestowing the crown upon her from above. And the third genre are hollow medieval statues known as Virge Ouvrante. It's French for opening virgins. These are figures of Mary that form an all-encompassing shell. You can think of them kind of like Russian nesting dolls, but there's a door and if you open it, you see that on the inside, there are carvings and paintings of church leaders, and in some cases, depictions of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That's pretty incredible and not exactly the way Mary was presented in the Bible. One of these is from the year 1300 and has large amounts of gold covering Mary on the outside and then the majority of the inside as well. Even opened to reveal Jesus sitting with the cross, Mary's crowned head remains visible. To me, she appears to be embodying the mother archetype again, but in a powerful way that is, again, reminiscent of more ancient goddess worship. Her power here is not being shown given to her, and almost looks like it's the opposite of the coronation images, and this time she's presiding over the people inside, including the men who are above her in most other works. It's no surprising that those Virge Ouvrant statues actually came to be regarded by church authorities as misleading and inappropriate, visually ascribing too much primacy to the mother of God, who was, after all, only a woman. Yeah, exactly. The scriptural verses describing Mary refer to her submission, her dutiful compliance, and her passiveness as the male characters in the story perform the heroic action. When she's first introduced in the biblical narrative, which as we learned a couple of episodes ago was written a long time after these events happened and was written, of course, by men, we know only that Mary, quote, found favor with God, end quote. 
that's not a bad thing, of course. If we believe in God, then, of course, everyone wants to live in a more moral, ethical way and achieve our potential and fulfill our destiny, which would lead to God's favor, right? Everyone would want that. But I do think that this phrase that she found favor with God can be tricky because it doesn't mention any of those actions. It doesn't talk about her personality. And because men have always been in a position of power, women have tended to always want to please men and find favor with men a little too much. So this just feels like it feeds that tendency in women and it sets up that pleasing inclination as a virtue that women should aspire to. And then as the story unfolds, we learn that Mary's role really is only to submit and to be passive. She acts as a vessel to facilitate the real work of salvation, which will be performed by her son. So the only time we hear from Mary in the New Testament is in the book of Luke. And as I even say that, it reminds me that we only hear Mary's voice through a male author. There is no book of Mary, but that's all we have. So here is what the Bible says that Mary said, Mary's own words. So Sophie, could you read that? Mm -hmm. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 38 and verses 48 to 49 in the King James Version. And Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. So here Mary is depicted as an object whose self-worth is derived from the Almighty doing great things to her. And thus her value is not based on an assessment of her own merit, but on the reassuring reflection of approval that she receives from male authority and from other people. Another point that occurred to me is that Gerda Lerner points out in The Creation of Patriarchy that men have always been the symbol makers. And the male authors of Genesis created an Eve whose sin was disobedience to patriarchal authority. Mary was seen as having an equal weight to balance out the sin of Eve, like in that Furtmeyer painting. In order to do that, she has to be the perfect woman in the way that Eve was the imperfect woman, which means that if Eve was disobedient, then Mary has to be obedient, and she is. So it's no wonder that the early church fathers made Mary almost a goddess. She's a goddess who's totally obedient to patriarchal authority, totally passive. She's silent, she's beautiful, she's a mother, and she just gets all the positive qualities projected onto her that the men in control of the religion at the time wanted her to have. Okay, so that is all we have on the Virgin Mary. Sophie, will you tell us about convents? When did the church start convents for monks and nuns? Well, nuns and monks were around before convents were. Some women would tell people they were brides of Christ. And in the 300s, when monks started their own monasteries, the women joined them. So there would often be a monastery and a convent next to each other. These convents were a big deal for women because they gave them another option other than marriage. So for many girls and women, becoming a nun was a very appealing option. Also, for a while in Europe, many families put their daughters in convents because they knew it was their only opportunity to receive an education. So convents became centers of learning for women. Each community had a mother superior, and even though the mother superior was supervised by men, the nuns did get to live in their little cloisters of sisterhood, and they got to have female authority figures. They got to look up to Mary as an idol and a mother figure. They got to study the lives of female saints. They got to commune with other women, and they got to receive guidance and direction from abbesses. 
And I should say that it still happens. I'm speaking in the past tense because I'm thinking about the early church, but this is still the life that's available to Catholic nuns. Right. Okay. I have just two thoughts to wrap up this portion on Catholicism. First, as we talked about, as powerful as it is to have a divine feminine presence that you actually talk about and you can talk to within a Christian religion, I do think it's a problem that she is a role model of subservience and passivity. A second takeaway for me is Marina Warner's book is called Alone of All Her Sex because she is the only woman who's able to both be a mother and also be a virgin. And that sets up a lot of religious women with an impossible paradox of having to be pure and not sexual on one hand, the virgin, and then be sexual on the other hand in order to please men and to become mothers. And that's a psychological schism that plagues a lot of women. Okay, a third point um, is about convents and the education that women could get inside the abbey was wonderful for those women. But that kind of education and that kind of empowerment wasn't available to everyday women outside the convent. So just kind of like Mary was kind of an exception among women. Also, the nuns were exceptions. They were kind of alone of all their sex as well, because those those benefits of living in a in a convent weren't available to most women at the time. So in other words, since most ordinary women were not virgins and most ordinary women couldn't live in convents, those freedoms couldn't apply to them. And there we have it. Um, so that's it. Sophie, thank you so much for participating in this episode. That was, you did such a fantastic job. Thank you for having me. 